This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For this episode, I chat with Richard Maltby, and we cover a little bit of everything from set design to work ethic to directing to following the logic and writing lyrics and so much more. So I hope you enjoy this part one with Richard Maltby. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe, and today with me on Zoom is Richard Maltby. Richard, thank you for joining me today. Oh, hello. Very nice to see you. Although I've got, a, there you go. Your this your your sign was right over your face. I've moved it away, so I can now see you. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. There's so much I want to talk with you about today. Before we get to any of it, I want to take it back to the beginning of time for you. What were your entertainment dreams growing up? I wanted to design scenery for the Radio City musical Easter show. <laughs> I wanted Very to be a set designer and the and the 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 goal would be to design scenery for that those I mean in those days um, you know, the Radio City Music Hall did, um, first of all, it performed every day. It did five shows of a movie and four stage shows during the day. That The doors opened at 9.30 and closed at like midnight. And, um, and the stage show was a 45-minute show with the Rockettes and the Corps de Ballet and, and huge scenery and big effects. Um, I just, uh, my little brain was blown by it. And, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And this lasted all the way through uh, up into college, into my second year in college when I discovered, uh, that I can't draw. And that was going to be a major hindrance to my designing career. Can you break down that defining moment of a shift between set design? I, I, I went. I wrote a show in, in in my senior year in prep school, and then I went to Yale, and um, I wanted to write musicals there. And um, I fell in. We were in the same. So I was in the same class with a guy named John Conklin, who is a world class uh, opera designer, uh, has become. And um, uh, for a while, we designed together. He's the sweetest and kind of mo most modest person. But in the middle of the second year, he, he just quietly suggested that instead of us designing together, perhaps we should design separately and see whether, whether uh, you know, the director liked one or the other. And um, I brought in my set design, which was pretty perfunctory. It was for a view from the bridge. And he brought in uh, a sort of a, a floating platform in the middle of the stage and the director went crazy for it. And, and all of us, just all of attention went over to John's set. And I over uh, on the other side of the room thought, well, that's the, end. <laughs> that's the end of that. You know, the, you know, the scene in, in fame where, where uh, the, the, the dancer doesn't get hired. Yeah. And, um, and, she goes down to the subway and you're fairly certain that she's going to jump in front of a subway train. And instead she throws her dance bag in front of the subway train and says, screw it. I'm going to be. A <laughs> and, uh, that's, that, that's sort of what happened. I, I, I said, I went, well, he can't write musicals and I can. So therefore <laughs> I'll do that. 
<laughs> what did your parents teach you about work ethic? Uh, I don't know. It was, I had a, a weird childhood. I, I, I mean, after we, we moved to New York and, and when I was seven and, um, um, it was a, it was, a, I don't know if you know the town of Syosset, Long Island, which is now a really big town, but it was small. It was really small. When we moved there, uh, my class through eighth grade was never larger than 13. I mean, that's the whole class. And um, so not surprisingly, I didn't have a lot of friends who were, you know, interested in what I was interested in. It never bothered me. I had, my grandfather had given me a bunch of marionettes, which I put in a, my mother put in a drawer and we forgot about, but I pulled them out one day and there was also a little sort of a cardboard stage. And I got interested in that. And then I started to, um, you know, design scenery for my, my, my little stage. And, and my father, uh, who was a music arranger uh, on the staff of NBC and ABC, uh, in those days in the radio, in radio, you had the summer off. Um, the shows went from September to June, and July and August were off. That, that was like summer replacements and things. And he had the summer off, and so he decided to build me a, a marionette stage, a real marionette stage with you know lights and everything. And uh, so I would put on shows that were that had music, and then basically the scenes, the sets changed. That was. <laughs> occasionally a, a marionette would dangle across the stage, but I didn't care about the marionettes at all. I just wanted to have scenery change. So, uh, and I was, you know, I would come home and I would go down and I was building a puppet and I would making, making scenery and everything. Um, and uh, I was perfectly happy. Yeah. Um, so my, my father worked at home. So I always saw him working. Um, and, uh, he was kind of, you know, starry-eyed. He was from Evanston, New York, uh, Illinois, and uh, his idea of a really good time was to go to um, Times Square, stand in the middle, and look at the lights. That was what. <laughs> so, I was, you know, I was screwed from the day I was born. I guess um, <laughs> my uh, my mother had trained to be a dancer, but in Wisconsin, which was silly i mean you can't have it there's no such thing as a career there and uh in the summer she was um waitressing at what at a, at a fancy country club and my father was the trumpet player in the house band and that's how they got together and uh, so then he traveled he, he was part of a bunch of traveling bands and uh that's when I was born, and I, I I spent the first two years of my life in the backseat of a Plymouth, you know, as they, we traveled from town to town. That and so I don't know I, I, whether that gave me a sense of of uh, of um, um, urgency or a sense of, of responsibility, or whether it just made me footloose because I I never have a feeling that I live any place. I always feel like it's temporary. Like I'm, and I think that came from my first two years. 
Yeah. How long have you lived at the place you're at now? Oh, I don't know, 12 years. But I mean, it, you know, it, I still feel like it's temporary. Did you have yeah. or do you have any mentors? And are there any standout lessons or pieces of advice? I wrote for myself. I wrote a show in, in you know, in, in prep school. Well, I, I got people, you know, I got this guy to write the book with me. And there was some guy who wrote some kind of music to be the music, to write the music. Thing is that nobody would, nobody wanted to write the lyrics. Nobody even knew what that meant. So I had to write the lyrics. That's mm -hmm. how I ended up being a lyricist uh, by default. Um, and there was a moment after I graduated from college when I came to New York. And I thought, um, I'm a lyricist. I don't want to be a lyricist. Who wants to be a lyricist? You're and in the hotel fixing the bad lines while everybody else is having fun in rehearsal. <laughs> so, uh, but I was a lyricist, and that was uh, that was what I was. What was the mental balance for you between stepping into directing and stepping into being a lyricist? During uh, our twenties, when we came to New York, David and I did did a bunch of shows. Um, there were some, you know, nightclub acts and things like that that I functioned as a director on. I wasn't really the director, but I sort of functioned as it was. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we did a couple of shows, all with relatively weak directors. And, um, and they would always do really strange things to, you know, they'd stage a number. I, I think we, we write so clearly and so obviously. Who could ever misunderstand this song? I mean, it's just so clear. Yeah. And then I, a director will put it on the stage, and it's like completely wrong. I mean, if, if it's supposed to be serious, they'll play it as a comedy, the other way around. And um, so after a certain amount of time, I began to think, I should become a director out of self-preservation. You know, just, hmm. I don't, I, I've never trained as a director. I don't know anything about being a director, but I can't be worse than they are. So, so, I mean, that was, that was exactly my, my, my choice. I mean, uh, you know, do I know anything? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. Could I be worse than anybody ever direct, <laughs> directed me? Oh, I can't be that. That's a piece of cake. I mean, you know, so um, when I was really 30, um, David had to, went, took a, a job in California. So, and I decided to take that time to sort of train myself as a director. And that was, uh, and to do that, I thought everybody, everybody's got 10 years on me. They trained in school. I didn't train in school. You know, they're, 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 they know something. I don't know anything. Um, and then I thought, well, I'll just give myself a, a schooling. And so I said yes to everything. I did benefits and nightclub acts and um, one-man shows. And uh, I created things that I could direct uh, that would be in little, you know, tiny places someplace um a i got a revival of juno to be the mark blitzstein musical uh, to be done at williamstown um and then i ended up 
letting Arvin Brown, who was then a major director, uh, direct it. And, uh, um, and I realized watching him do it, and he's a real world-class director, he didn't understand musicals. Hmm. And I thought, okay, he's a better director. He's a trained director. He doesn't know musicals. I do. So that's so that's a plus. Um, and then um, I was pursuing it, and and uh, I that um, that uh, production of Juno had Geraldine Fitzgerald in it, the great actress Geraldine Fitzgerald, and and she and I hit it off, and she did a I did a nightclub act for her, and then. She was going to do a production of Long Day's Journey Tonight in uh, Philadelphia. And she knew me as a director. And she said, why don't you be the director of it? And I said, sure. <laughs> Not realizing that all I knew was musicals. And Long Day's Journey Tonight is the, long, is the most non-musical that ever was. <laughs> it's four hours of nothing, of blocking. <laughs> you know, it's four hours of coaching actors. The one thing I was unsure of, you know, the lights, I know stagecraft. And, and in this play, the lights go on at the beginning of the scene and they go off and the curtain comes down. <laughs> I had no stagecraft whatsoever. But I did it and, and it, it turned out really well. And um, I did another one. And then by then, Lynn Meadow, who is the head of the Manhattan Theater Club, um, she was, when she was 12 years old, we did a musical at Yale called Grand Tour. And um, it had a school teacher in it who was Gretchen Cryer, by the way. And, um, and um, there was a scene with a whole bunch of school kids and we got some local school kids. And one of them was this tall girl named uh, um, Lynn Meadow. So, Fast forward, she goes to college, she graduates from college, she comes into New York, she is offered the about-to-be-bankrupt Manhattan Theater Club and says, sure, why not? And um, I helped her with the first benefit. And, you know, so we were, you know, like hanging out. And she said, why don't you do a an evening of, of uh, she had a, there was a, in this, she had a space called Bohemian Hall, which was a, uh, Bohemia it was a, for, for Bohemians in New York, not not hippie Bohemians, some people from Bohemia. Um, mm. And uh, there was a big bar, and there was a they they could put they did nightclub acts there, and she was trying to figure out whether there was any possibility of doing anything artistic there, and she suggested that maybe David and I that I do an evening of songs by that David and I did. And I thought that's great because I wanted to direct my own songs. Mm. Um, and uh, so I, I did that. Um, I discovered, <laughs> I discovered having, because I started to make the same mistakes that directors had made with me, that our stuff is actually quite subtle. You know, it, it really isn't as obvious as it seems. It's their theater songs, which means that there's a subtext, and the subtext is largely against the grain of what the songs appear to be. There'll be this bouncy melody for a for a, a, a serious dramatic moment, or or the other way around. Hmm. And um, 
so I forgave all the directors who had screwed up our songs and um and we did the show and it moved uh, you know to a, it was it was well received it moved to a little off Broadway theater in a restaurant and it ran for you know nine months or something and uh, a year later meanwhile I had a friend named named uh, Murray Horowitz who uh, had developed a one-man show about Sholem Aleichem. And I, you know, in my process of saying yes to everything, I, I did that with him. And he's a jazz buff. And he said, uh, after we did this, uh, our, our show, uh, we should, I should do a show uh, about uh, Fats Waller's music. And uh, um, so we tried to make a book musical out of it. But it didn't go anywhere. The book musical, he, Waller died at 37. There's no second act to his life. So yeah. we stopped and um, put it aside. And Lynn said, well, you were all enthusiastic about the Waller music. Why don't you do a little nightclub act um, using the Waller music? <laughs> so having nothing better to do, uh, I said, sure. And... Uh, we had auditions, you know, and then came these unknowns, Nell Carter and Andre DeShields and Ken Page, and Charlene Woodard and Armelia McQueen. And I said, oh, wow. We went into rehearsal with a stack of sheet music and some good ideas on this cast. And we rehearsed for four weeks and we opened and the audience went crazy the moment we opened and we ran for four weeks. We closed. A month later, we went back into rehearsal for Broadway. We, a month after that, we opened on Broadway and a month after that, we won every award you can win on Broadway. And suddenly I was a Broadway director. When it was happening, did it make sense to you? Did it feel right? Or were you not even thinking about that and just kind of doing the thing? Well, I was following the logic of it. It was, it was, a, it was a mystical experience. It seemed like, um, I mean, we replaced the musical director after one week. Uh, we replaced, um, uh, I had to find a choral a guy to do fabulous vocal arrangements and Steve Sondheim recommended a guy who is completely unknown, uh, who turned out to be spectacular. And um, um, everything, it had a feeling of rightness to it. Every time we made a choice, it seemed to be, it, it reverberated through the rest of the process. And, and uh, just in case I haven't made this clear, this ended up being a misbehaving. This was a gigantic hit. Um, Familiar and, uh, with that. <laughs> well, it, 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 in in about 150 reviews, there wasn't a single bad sentence. And I thought, oh, well, that's what happens when you open a show on Broadway. Everybody loves you. And nobody says anything mean about you. <laughs> you know, isn't that, isn't, that's what happened, right? Uh I should point out to your listeners that uh, that's not the case. I wonder if you can speak on a time when something did not have a rightness to it or when you felt the need to 
put it down maybe because it wasn't working the trouble with it is you can you you can very rarely get put it down because if you have if you are at the point when it's not um uh working then you're probably in production and so therefore um mm. you have to go forward you can't just sort of say oh i mean you can i suppose shows close out of town and things like that but uh, um I've been pretty fortunate in in that. Uh, even when shows are, are are really strange, like I mean, Baby went through a, a tremendous amount of 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 change during its pre uh, Broadway life, um, and um, on the first day of our Broadway rehearsals, we had done a lot of rewriting before that, and we read through the script and and it didn't happen it just was sitting there it was not um it we had we were following um we were following a the basic dramatic principle which is that that dramatic scenes are about conflict right mm -hmm. so the scenes were dramatic and all of that but it seemed to be saying that if you have, if you decide to have a baby, your life will be ruined. <laughs> you'll, you'll be, it will thr thrust you into, uh, you know, terrible circumstances with your partner, which was, let me say, not our intention. Um, and, um, and we realized that while conflict may be true, if, if the issue was a baby, you don't take it out on your partner if you're if if let's say you didn't really want the baby or you really weren't ready for it um and you didn't expect it uh you don't you know accost your wife and 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 say why did you do this to me you say i couldn't be happier because the issue was a baby and so suddenly we realized that when the issue is a baby, you tend not to talk about the issues. You tend to, uh, there is an enormous amount of subtext. You keep a whole lot of stuff buried in it. And so we started rewriting it to make the scenes that. And uh, I thought, it was really fascinating. Uh, I mean, I don't like, know that there's another musical that has as much subtext in it for a bunch of, of relatively ordinary events. I mean, the whole show, the point of the show, baby, is, is this thing, which is the most commonplace event in anybody's life. I mean, the, you know, is utterly life-changing. I mean, changes your relationship to your partner in mm. profound ways um, yeah. that you don't even know is happening. You're a child before that, and then you're a grown-up. And whether you like it or not, you will never be the same. And that change costs you something. Mm. You give up something. You you know. So this completely ordinary event, I mean, people have ch babies all the time. Um, is also 
possibly the most dramatic and life-changing event that that is going to happen in most people's lives. So that we suddenly that's that's what we 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 discovered we had. And we discovered it on the first day of our Broadway rehearsal. So we start set out to rewrite during the rehearsal. And didn't, you know, did we we were on stage in text and we hadn't finished the ending of it. So I had I had to tech the old ending, even though we had written a new one, because I didn't have time to rehearse the new one. I don't know if this is making sense. I'm sort of jumping all over the place here. This is making complete sense to me. I'm curious, when you have such a noticeable deadline that's outward facing to the public, were you sweating or were you just like, let's get it done? Well, I was sweating and it's a let's get it done. We were after something. Yeah. I, I think... It, it, there was. I think you sweat when you don't know what you're going for. Yeah. But we knew we were going for a kind of a truth, and we knew when we didn't have it, and we knew if we didn't have it, we would do something else to make it better. I mean, we had I think a just a two or three week rehearsal uh, preview period, and we used every day. I mean, we would write a scene that involved props and all sorts of things, put them in, uh, rehearse it during the day or during for two days, put it in the show, decide we didn't like it and take it right out the next day um, mm. in, in two or three circumstances. I mean, I just remember, um, I remember that we, you know, did some things that were incredibly elaborate and and I don't remember how we ever did them so fast, but they went out as fast as they went in. So. Is there a particular project that has taught you the most about yourself or a significant amount about yourself? Maybe in a way, uh, because it was so personal um, and, and because we had to uh, use ourselves. I mean, for example, Baby has... has three couples, a couple in their 20s, a couple in their 30s, and a couple in their 40s. And the couple in their 40s are saying goodbye to their children, their children going off to college. They're, they're in their early 40s. And um, there was this big duet, a big set of, when they, a problem, that they, they it, it sort of breaks up their marriage because they're, they're, they're un- they've been parents all their life and they have, they don't have any um they have to go back and be a couple again and they don't know how to do it and uh they have this duet and david had written this gorgeous melody and we had this title called and what if we had loved like that and i wrote this lyric and it was elaborate it was pretty but it just didn't seem to be truthful enough and um uh, I remember, I remember flinging myself on the floor, saying, "I have no talent. <laughs> Why am I? You know, I, I a really talented person would know how to solve this." And um, and David said, "Well, look, listen. Let's. What do we know about these couples? What what do we what are we doing wrong?" And we started out by saying, "Well, they're you know, how old are they? Well, we were forty. Yeah. And we were—I was treating them like they were my parents, like my—they they were that generation. I was, and I realized 
Well, I'm 40. I don't feel in, remotely old, and they don't. I mean, I was giving them all sorts of emotions that, that, that they wouldn't have until they were like in their 60s. And, mm. um, and so then I went back and wrote it as if it was me, you know, and, um, and it's a really good lyric. So, <laughs> so I was pleased with that. It was one of the most, one of the times when I've used myself most vividly in a song. How have you gotten better at communicating through writing? Oh, no, there's there's a song in Closer Than Ever called There about a wife complaining that her husband is never there. <laughs> and he's present, but he's never there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the husband's trying to figure out what on earth she means by that because he doesn't understand it. He's always there. So why is she complaining? Um, meaning that he doesn't get it. I suspect I knew what I was talking about in a, I mean, that's probably the, I've been married twice. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> I was probably never there. When you get stuck, if you get stuck, how do you get unstuck? When you get stuck, it's because you don't really know what it is. You don't really, you have, you may think you know what you're writing, but you don't. Mm. You think you know what you're writing, but there's actually something else there and you don't know what it is. Um, and so what if I write a lyric and it's not good or I don't feel like I've really matched the I don't have the goods in it. Um, what I usually do is um, write write it as a monologue, write it write it in prose. Um, because a lyric, is rhymed and because it has rhythms that and, and I we tend to write David and I tend to write the melody first and then so it has a melody it has its rhythm structures and and, and its rhyme pattern um, those are technical things that begin to um, control you mm. and they okay that word the word that you really want doesn't rhyme so but there's another word that is sort of like it so you use that one in and that rhymes um the rhyme can lead you down a garden garden path and suddenly you're not saying exactly what you want to say you're saying what works and um uh so rhyme is not is not your friend at first and um so when you write it in prose you just go for what's going on and and you're not worried about what what the actual you know lines are um mm. and um and in when you write it in prose auxiliary ideas find their way into what you're writing and you suddenly write you know find yourself writing um you know and he smiled why did he smile uh, you know i mean that wasn't what I thought was going on. Oh, I get it. You know, or you you find yourself writing, you know, something that that is part of the of the truth of the moment, and then you can use. It startles you, and then you, uh, you know, you can go back and 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 look again. And um, sometimes in the, also in the course of it those startling thoughts also carry with them 
words you didn't expect to use. And that opens the door to a different vocabulary, a richer vocabulary. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. <laughs>